Well, welcome, everybody. It's good to see you guys this weekend, and it's, uh, it's great to be together. Hey, it's fun the way that God is working here at Grace, and uh, as, uh, as we fill up in our rooms, I uh, just want to remind you that there are other service options. And so uh, Saturday night, 4.30, 6.30, those services have tons of energy in them and a little bit more seats. And so when you're thinking about spacing and stuff like that, and then I just came back from the Montrose building and that uh, building, which is just three miles away, I speak live there, same bands, the band, like this band was there last week. And so the bands will rotate through uh, and there's lots of seats there. I go back and forth, I have a limo, Go back and forth. It looks like a Volkswagen Jetta, but it's a limo. And, uh, and run back and forth. And so um, if you love that you're here, if you want to space out, there are spaces in those places and I encourage you to take advantage of that. We started a series last weekend that I'm excited about called Resolved. And we're talking about the idea of being resolved. And this idea we said is gonna be kind of in the foundation of almost everyone's life who has moved forward in their life. So if you started a business, if you uh, excelled in athletics or music or got a degree, somewhere in there you resolved yourself. You said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna work out and go to camp so I can play lacrosse in this spring. I'm going to learn the guitar, et cetera, et cetera. And what we said was that same characteristic shows up for us spiritually, right? That if you've ever seen someone who has matured spiritually, uh, they've walked closely with God, they learned their Bible. Maybe you know somebody who's been married a long time. Uh, there's a resolve that settles in. And somewhere in there, a decision was made that I'm going to give my life to Christ in this way. I'm gonna follow Christ, I'm gonna know his word and follow his word. We're gonna practice the principles of Christ, etc. But it's not just God worked in me or something supernatural kind of happened to me, but a, a, a cognitive decision was made that I'm going to move my life forward in that direction and these are the things that are gonna define and direct my life. And we said that spiritual resolve is important and it's important because of where we live and who we are as a Christ follower. So the Bible would say this. The Bible would say that what is true of every culture, every place and time in history and every piece of dirt on the planet, the same thing is true is that all of the world is lost and fallen. That's Bible speak. So it's defined by sin and godlessness. It's not defined by Christ. We are here to proclaim Christ, if you're a Christ follower, to a lost and dying world, lost and dying spiritually. So what that means is this. As a Christ follower, the Bible says that I am called out. That's what the, the word church means means. It's the called out ones or the gathering of the called out. So I'm called out from whatever culture that I am in. And as a called out person, Peter says, what is true about me now is that I am a royal priest, a part of a holy nation. I'm a people belonging to God. So the spiritual entity of the church are the people who now belong to God, but we live in the world. 
right? So we live in our culture, but we're not belonging to the culture. In fact, Peter says this in 1 Peter. He says, actually, guys, you, you should think of it this way. You are foreigners and exiles on the planet in the culture that we live in. You are foreigners and exiles and you are to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. In other words, the culture does not just disagree with God, it is actively opposing God. The Christ followers don't have just a, like a different set of values. The values of the world oppose the values of Christ followers, oppose ethics, oppose morality, oppose truth. It's waging war against our soul. So Peter and others and Jesus and others would say, yeah, as a Christ follower, you just have to remember that. There's nothing weird about it. It's just that's what that is. And you have to remember that that is what is happening to you and around you. So think of yourself as a foreigner. Think of yourself as an exile. Don't think of yourself as a citizen of the culture that you exist in. So what that means is that as a Christ follower, we live in a tension, right? We live in a tension. I, as a Christ follower, am not defined by the culture that I live in but I am to serve the people who are defined by the culture that I live in. As a Christ follower, I don't find my value from my culture, but I am to love people who do find their value from their culture. As a Christ follower, the culture has no authority over me. I don't yield to the culture, but I do submit myself to those who have authority within the culture. Right? So we always live in this tension because of who we are and how we're called out by Christ. And last weekend, we started talking about this and uh, I kind of laid down this idea. It's on the app, it's on the website, it's on the podcast. And if you buy me sushi, I'll show up and re-preach the sermon for you. But it's all out there. We started laying down this foundation and we did that by introducing ourselves to these four guys that we would know the kind of the most clearly by the names of Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel. And Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel were four Christ followers, people who followed the one true God, who were delivered into a godless culture. So in the Old Testament, the first part of the Bible, the place that the presence of God and the teachings of God and the culture of God was kind of experienced and taught and locked into was the city of Jerusalem. And in the Old Testament, the Jewish nation were the called out people. The church didn't exist yet. And so they were called out. And where they found truth and lived truth and studied truth and were grounded in truth was the city of Jerusalem. The Bible says in Daniel chapter one that God delivered Jerusalem to Nebuchadnezzar, who is the king of Babylon, all right? So Jerusalem, the people of God, were delivered to Babylon, and Babylon was a place of godlessness. It was a pagan culture or a godless place that didn't, wasn't just different than Jerusalem, but opposed Jerusalem. The godlessness of Babylon waged war against the, against the godliness of Jerusalem. And in the Bible, Babylon and Jerusalem are geographical places, and then they become metaphoric in the Bible. So through the New Testament, especially toward the end of it, 
the metaphor of Jerusalem always kind of refers to the presence and the truth of God. And the metaphor of Babylon always refers to the presence and the seeds or the, or the kingdom of Satan. And those two things always oppose each other. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the boys who were teenagers, probably older teenagers, maybe early 20s, but probably older teenagers, lived in the physical Jerusalem and they were delivered to the physical Babylon with the heart of Jerusalem that was opposed by the heart of Babylon. And in that process, the Bible says that they, what they did was they resolved themselves. Daniel resolved himself not to defile himself. They said in their heart, listen, what we're going to do is we're going to root our identity in the one true God. We're gonna to choose to follow the one true God. We're gonna live life as defined and directed by the one true God. Even though they're trying to assimilate us into Babylon, they put them through a three-year re-educational program. They didn't try to flee Babylon. They didn't protest Babylon. They didn't sue Babylon, but they were not assimilated into Babylon. They held their faith. They followed the one true God, even as they graciously, sacrificially, and humbly served the king of Babylon. So you can catch up on all of that if you want to through those methods that I told you. This weekend, what I wanna do is I wanna show you how this resolve starts to play out. And I wanna show you how it works. I wanna show you what the effects of it are. And then we'll talk a little bit about how that can show up in our lives too. We're gonna to go to Daniel chapter two, but before we do that, I wanna remind you of something that we learned last weekend. In Daniel chapter one, verse 17, God's talking about these four boys and he says, God gave these four young men an unusual aptitude of understanding every aspect of literature and wisdom. And God gave Daniel the special ability to interpret the meaning of visions and dreams. And we're gonna start to see that ability play out here in Daniel chapter two. And then you're gonna see that play out several times throughout the rest of Daniel's story and the weeks to come, all right? So let's go to Daniel chapter two. Grab your Bibles, go there, Daniel chapter two. If you wanna use the Bibles that are in the chairs, it's page 719. And this is on the app also. If you just wanna use that. I wanna take you through parts of Daniel chapter two so we can get our head around kind of the narrative of what's happening here. So Daniel chapter two, verse one. One night during the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had a disturbing dream that he couldn't, and he couldn't sleep. So he called in his magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers, and he demanded that they tell him what he had dreamt. As they stood before the king, he said, I had a dream that deeply troubles me and I must know what it means. And so the astrologer said, tell us a dream and we'll tell you what it means. But the king said to the astrologers, I'm serious about this. If you don't tell me what I dreamt, what my dream was and what it means, you'll be torn limb from limb. Your houses will be turned into heaps of rubbles. But if you tell me what I dreamt and what the dream means, I give you many wonderful gifts and honors. Tell me what I dreamt and what it means. So let's just, I wanna make sure we got our head around this. So Nebuchadnezzar had this bad dream. He calls in what, what would in ancient times be called like the royal court. And it had magicians, fortune tellers, astronomers, lots and lots of stuff like that. Remember, this is a godless culture. So the king's always trying to understand what's happening around him in the spiritual world and also read his future. So he calls these guys in because he has a bad dream. He says, listen, this is what I want from you. 
I want you to tell me what I dreamt and what it means. And the guys are like, um, if you tell us what you dreamt, we can tell you what it means. And he was like, Inu, you have to tell me what I dreamt because you can know the future. You're the spiritual one, right? You have to tell me the dream and its meaning or I will kill you. That's, what, that's what's gonna happen. But if you tell me, I will give you many wonderful things, but you must tell me both those things. And if you read those verses, there's a back and forth where they're like, we cannot tell you what you dreamt. How in the world will we know that? And so the king was like, all right, I'm killing you all. And he followed through with his execution order, right? Now, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are in this class of people, right? So they're in this royal court, but they weren't in this meeting. So they didn't know what was going on. So they're at home playing their new PS5 they got for Christmas. They hear the doorbell ring. They think it's Papa John's. They go and answer the door and they're like, hey, we're here to execute you, right? So that's kind of how this played out. And you pick this up, verse 14, the commander of the guard's army came to kill them. They had no idea what was going on. Daniel handled the situation with wisdom and discretion. So he asked, why has the king issued such a, a harsh decree? The commanders told him what happened and Daniel went to see the king at once and requested more time to tell the king what the, dream, what the, mean, what the dream meant. And so Daniel's like, uh, what? Like, yeah, you're getting executed. Why? The guard tells him and he says, can I talk to the king for a second? So Daniel goes and sees the king gets filled in, says, hey, can we have like to the morning and maybe I can help you out with this? The king allows that to happen. And then the Bible says this, that Daniel went home and told his friends. He went back to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? They're sharing an apartment. They're just out of college, all they could afford. And so they're all living together. He goes back and he tells his friends all that happens. And then he says this to his friends. He urged them to ask the God of heaven to show them his mercy by telling them the secret. Daniel goes back to the boys and says, fellas, we got to pray. Like we, the king is legit going to execute us in the morning. It wasn't the pizza place. We have to pray. And so he urged them to ask the God of heaven to show them mercy. They start to pray. Verse 19, that night the secret was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven. So God reveals, <clears throat> remember, it's the dream and the interpretation. So God shows Daniel what he had shown to Nebuchadnezzar and he reveals the secret Daniel begins to praise the Lord, verse 20. He said, praise the name of God forever and ever, for he has all wisdom and power. Verse 21, ready? He controls God. He controls the course of world events, and he removes kings and sets up other kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to scholars. He reveals deep and mysterious things and knows what lies beneath in darkness, though he is surrounded by light. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors, for you have given me wisdom and strength. 
You have told me what we ask of you and revealed to us what the king demanded. He goes and he tells the commander of the guard, I got the answer. The guard sets up the meeting with the king and uh, Daniel goes in to talk to the king. Verse 26, the king said to Daniel, is it true? Can you tell me what my dream was and what it means? And Daniel says, um, actually, no, I cannot. There is no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or fortune tellers who can reveal the king's secret, but there is a God in heaven. There is a God in heaven who reveals secrets and he has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the future. Now I will tell you your dream and the visions you saw as you lay in your bed. And that's what Daniel did. He said, King, there ain't nobody that can do this, but I know a guy, I know a God, and we prayed. And he revealed it to us. And I'll tell you what God showed me. And Daniel, if you read on through chapter two, went into great, great detail about what that dream was. Remember, he didn't know what it was. So he went into great detail about what that dream was and what it meant about Nebuchadnezzar's kingdoms and many kingdoms to follow. And we're not gonna explore that this weekend. We could probably spend six months exploring that but in this journey through Daniel, we're looking at these four guys. And what I want you to see, and what I want us to kind of pick out of here, is how their spiritual resolve caused them to glorify God in the midst of this spiritual crisis, right? And that decisions that they had already made they now begin to act on. And I want you to see how they did that. And I want you to see what God did with the resolve that they had made to him, right? I want you to look at this a little bit. They're in a pickle. Daniel comes home and says, hey, fellas, we're getting executed in the morning. Let's pray. And that's exactly what they did. And I want you to see this. I want you to understand this about spiritual resolve. Spiritual resolve is fueled by a close relationship with God. Now on the surface, I know that sounds a little bit like something that a pastor would say, but we're gonna look at this for a minute. Spiritual resolve is fueled by a close relationship with God. When Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego went to prayer, listen, that was not the first time they had done that. We see throughout the rest of the book of Daniel that their prayer time, their turning to God was their habit. They had learned that habit in Jerusalem. They were taught that if you want to know the heart of God and you wanna walk with God and you wanna be close to God, one of the main ways that you do that is in prayer. And when they resolve not to defile themselves, one of the things that they would have resolved to do in that process is to pray. And when it's the doorbell rings and it's not DoorDash, it's the executioner, they didn't panic, they didn't call their lawyer, they didn't pack a ba survival bag with dry goods and try to get out of Babylon. They went boldly into the throne room of their God who they knew was the creator of heavens and earth and the giver and the sustainer of life. And they 
asked him, this God that they knew, this God that they had walked with, this God that they had journeyed with, and they asked him for the answer and him for the help and him for the rescue. Now what's fascinating is the apostle Peter tells us to do the same thing. Jesus would say that. He'd say, yeah, come boldly in the throne room of grace. Make your request known to me. Paul would talk about this. Peter would talk about this. The Apostle Paul talks about this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Paul says this, always be joyful, never stop praying, be thankful in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you who belong to Christ Jesus. If I'm a Christ follower, if I'm ever wondering what the will of God is, well, part of it's revealed right here that I am to never stop praying, right? That I am to constantly be in prayer. Now, the old translations used to say, I am to pray without ceasing. Now, let's talk about this for a second. When we think about praying without ceasing or never stop praying, for most of us, you're not alone in this, and I was raised this way too, so we kind of grew up this way. For most of us, when we think about praying without ceasing, we can't fathom that. Because for most of us, when we think about prayer, we think about it ritualistically. So when we think about prayer, we think about a ritual that we participate in. We will, when we think about prayer, we think about like the Our Father. We think about uh, like uh, praying before a meal, you know, over, over the teeth and through the gums, watch out stomach, here it comes, that kind of thing. Uh, we think about praying before bedtime. Uh, my dad taught me a prayer, like, um, now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take, which is a very morbid prayer for a six-year-old, but I don't know what Clarence was thinking, but he taught me that one, right? So we think about that, like, let's pray before we eat. If you don't pray before you eat, you get a stomach ache. We think about prayer very ritualistically, and you probably think about prayer that way, and I bet you, Sushi, that if you're honest about the way you pray, you pray ritualistically. You pray about the same things almost every time you pray. God, give us a safe trip home. God, let us have a good night's sleep. God, bless the food. And we pray about the same thing. Pray for health, pray for safety. Like we pray ritualistically. So when, Pete, when, when Paul says, never stop praying, we're like, am I just supposed to like chant the same thing all the time? And actually Jesus specifically says, don't do that. That's the way the Pharisees pray. So that's not what's on God's mind. The problem is that we don't think about prayer correctly. Ready? Prayer is not ritualistic, prayer is relational, right? Prayer is relational, it's not ritualistic. So when I'm praying, I'm communicating with God. In my relationship with Heidi, I never stop talking to Heidi. I talk to her throughout the day, I, I talk to her about what's going on, I share my heart with her, my mind with her, my fears with her. We're in constant communication, right? Now, ready? Spiritual resolve is found in a close relationship with God. Every counselor on planet Earth will tell you that when, when communication breaks down, relationships break down. If you're struggling with your relationship with your teenagers, it's because you're not communicating. 
You know that, I know that. They're in the room all the time. They won't talk to me. If you're struggling with a relationship with your friend, it's because you're not communicating. If you're struggling in your relationship with your marriage, it's because you're not communicating. Because when communication breaks down, relationship breaks down. If I called Heidi every day and asked her the same four questions the same three times every day, if I called her in the morning, at lunch, and right before I had dinner, and I said, hey, who's getting the kids? What's for dinner? Where are we doing tomorrow? Did you pay the bills? Hey, by the way, who's getting the kids? What's for dinner? What are we doing tomorrow? Did you pay the bills? If our communication was ritualistic, there would be no depth to our relationship. And if there is no depth to our relationship, the relationship cannot take a hit. It cannot go through a difficult time. It's not sustainable. I have to communicate to have depth, and I have to have depth to have resolve. See how that works? And when these boys are in trouble, they went to the depth of their relationship with God that they had resolved, we saw last week, to build their life off of. They did not run to their own understanding. They did not run to external processes. They went to the, bowl, the throne room of God and they prayed, right? Now, prayer, let's just talk about this for a second. One of the reasons why our prayers are ritualistic is because most of our prayers are one-dimensional. And prayer is not one-dimensional, right? Prayer is multi-dimensional. I'm only gonna talk about two of the dimensions right now. But prayer, basically, if you, if you put it in like a, a nutshell, I'd say it this way. Prayer has two components, right? The first component we're real familiar with and we practice a lot. The first component is to ask. And so we ask God. We go boldly in the throne of grace. We make our request known to God. If you make your request known to God, as long as you are requesting something that is in line with the heart of God, he hears that request and responds to you. If you ask for something that is selfish, the book of James says the reason that you ask and you do not have is because you ask for the wrong motives. So if I ask God for something selfish, right? God make me rich, God make me famous, God make her change because I don't want to, God give me a Lamborghini, God let my hair grow back. Like if I do prosperity gospel stuff, God will not hear that prayer because it is a selfish prayer. But if I ask for selfless reasons, God change me, God help me overcome my sin, God work in that person's heart, God let the Buckeyes win, God defeat the Steelers, right? Am I right, am I right? You know what I mean by defeat the Steelers? Do you know what I mean by defeat this year, right? If I ask for things that please God, God answers those prayers. And so we're used to asking those things, right? And that is one dimension of prayer. The second dimension of prayer is something that we're not nearly as good at. In prayer we ask, but in prayer we also listen. We also listen. Uh, uh, yes, or a couple days ago, we were doing the podcast that we just released a couple days ago. So it's out right now. And part of it's on prayer. And Pastor Joe and I were doing that podcast. And somebody sent a question in for the podcast, which we encourage you to do. And they asked me the question. They said, what do I do when I ask God for something and he doesn't listen to me? And Joe asked me that question on the podcast. And I said, well, actually... If you would ask that question, it would indicate to me that you don't understand prayer. 
Because you asking for something and God not doing it does not mean that God didn't listen to you. It actually means that you didn't listen to God. If I communicate with Heidi and I say, can you bring chicken home for dinner? And I come home and there's no chicken. It's not necessarily true that Heidi ignored me. Because if she answered I already made soup. See, me failing to listen is why I didn't understand her response. It completes the relational circuit. I don't feel rejected because there's no chicken. I actually wind up feeling love because she made soup. So prayer is asking and prayer is also listening. And sometimes we think that God doesn't hear our prayer and that's not the case at all. It's that we don't hear God. He has a different thing to say to us than what we could originate in the beginning. And when you look at the boys and you look at them in, in trouble here, what you see is that double dimension playing out. Verse 18, chapter one, he urged them to ask the God of heaven to show, let's pray, we're in trouble. Chapter one, verse 19, that night the secret was revealed to Daniel. Daniel had to listen. See, We ask and we listen to what God wants to tell us. Now, let's, let's put this together a little bit, okay? They resolved not to defile themselves, but resolve is found in deep relationship with God. If I do not have a deep relationship with God, I will not have the resolve. And one of the ways that I get a deep relationship with God is I pray. I ask and he responds to me because if I am not in deep relationship with God, then I will never have the resolve. The relationship cannot withstand it, okay? But this is what's true of relationships. I want us to get this, this is important, ready? Relationships, to have a deep relationship relationships take relational energy. These guys did not stumble into this. And when you look through the rest of the book of Daniel, what you see is a spiritual pattern in their life where they purposely and intentionally put the relational energy into their walk with God. This was not a panic, this was a reflex for them. I'm in trouble, I'm going to go to the place where I have the power and I have access to the wisdom that I need in my life, right? Babylon is a place and a metaphor and Jerusalem is a place and a metaphor. Guys, catch this. What you have to know is that we live in Babylon but we are children of Jerusalem. We are called out. And we're sent to Babylon to be salt and light. But when the children of Jerusalem live in Babylon, you have to live there as a foreigner and an exile. And if you live there as a foreigner of exile, in order to have a deep relationship with God, you will never find it in Babylon because Babylon wars against the soul. As a child of Jerusalem living in Babylon as a foreigner in exile, 
I have to know that Babylon wars against the soul. Therefore, in order to have a deep relationship with God, ready? I cannot build my life off the patterns of Babylon. Babylon is always noisy. It is always distracting. It is always loud. And when I live in a noisy and distracted and loud culture, the only way for me to have conversation and intimacy and depth is to break from the patterns of this culture and put the energy into this relationship. We live in a digital Babylon where the things that war against our soul are in our hand. The noise, the distraction, is our phone. Babylon beckons to me all day, every day. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Jeff, what are you doing? What are you doing? Hey, Jeff. What are you doing? What are you doing? Hey, Jeff. Hey, Jeff. Did you hear about the Browns? Jeff. Did you hear about the coach has COVID? Hey, Jeff. This is it. Hey, hey, Jeff. Hey, Jeff. Are you looking for a car? Hey, Jeff. Did you hear about the news? Hey, Jeff. Were you looking at lawnmowers last night? Hey, Jeff. What are you doing? Somebody tagged you. Hey, Jeff. Somebody tagged you. Jeff. Somebody said this about you. Hey, Jeff. Somebody put you on their news alert. The news alert alerted them that you were in the news. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Jeff. Did you know that? Hey, Jeff. Hey, Jeff. What are you doing this afternoon? What are you doing tonight? What are you doing tonight? Well, you know what you do tonight. You know what's coming out on Apple TV tonight? Hey, Jeff. Hey, Jeff. How are you, Jeff? How you doing? Hey, Jeff. Constantly. This is why, if you're married and you have kids, this is why you have to have a date night. Because kids are just like your phone. (laughs) This is why you have to have a quiet time. This is why you have to make time for intimacy. You gotta have a sex night. Because you never just run into it. If you participate in the patterns of Babylon, you will assimilate and become Babylonian. The children of Jerusalem have a different pattern in their life. And Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego reacted, it was reflexive. Guys, we gotta pray. Not guys, we gotta Google it. Guys, we gotta pray. We gotta lean into our close relationship with God. Now, this is what I'll say to us. I put this in our notes. When you don't stop, you won't start. When you don't stop, you won't start. There's a survey, about a million people have been surveyed, tens of thousands of churches. Actually, Grace Church participates in this, right? We're one of the largest churches in the world, and so we try to serve other churches by doing these kind of things. It's called the Reveal Survey. We take this every three, four years. We'll take the Reveal Survey. And this survey is about 15 years out, and one of the things that they have proven scientifically is that there are three main things that fuel our spiritual growth. And people who regularly participate in these three things will grow spiritually. The number one thing, bar none, that fuels spiritual growth is regular focused time in God's word. Read your Bible. The second thing that fuels spiritual growth, bar none, scientific survey, all the qualifiers met. The thing that fuels spiritual growth, secondly, bar none, is regular, ongoing interaction with Christ through prayer, pray. 
The third thing that fuels spiritual growth, bar none, is regular and deep relationships with God's people go to church. It takes energy. But if I don't break from the patterns of Babylon, I won't start and fuel and feed the habits of Jerusalem. And if I do not have a close interaction with God, I will not have the fuel, so to say, the power of resolve to live in the Babylon that God has delivered us into. Now what God does with this is fascinating. Their resolve to walk with God resulted in God being the focal point of their life's message. It's really, really fascinating to me that when they go through all of this and you get to the end of the story, nobody can do it. Daniel, is there a guy in the kingdom that can do it? Actually, no, there's not, but there's a God. I know a God. And there's a God who reveals these secrets. Daniel went, he's the hero. Remember, everybody else was off with their head. He got all the blessings from it. But when he went in, Daniel tells him the dream. Daniel interprets the dream. And at the end of him telling the dream and the end of him interpreting the dream, it's really, really fascinating. The king is talking about God, not Daniel. Chapter two, verse 47, the king says, truly your God is the greatest of gods, the Lord over kings, a revealer of mysteries, for you've been able to reveal this secret. Their resolve caused them to pursue, we would say in the New Testament, Christ in a deep way. They had an intimate relationship with God. They communicated with God. They knew God's heart. They knew God's mind. They trusted God's heart. They trusted God's mind so that when the doorbell rings and the executioner was there, they ran to God. They didn't run to themselves. They didn't run to the, the outlets of the culture. I'm gonna sue you. I'm gonna protest you. I'm gonna put it on social media. God did a supernatural work. They wound up being the heroes but who was talked about in the end was the one true God. Because the message of Daniel's life and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's life, you're gonna see this pattern as we go forward. It's gonna go back to the one true God and back to the one true God and back to the one true God. Because when you resolve to be defined, defined and directed by Christ, and you walk in close relationship with him, what spills out of your life is him, not you. And the king and the kingdom was changed, not because of somebody's opinion, but because of their pursuit of the heart and the mind of God. Right? All right. Guys, I tell you, I was really looking forward to this weekend. I really was. Because very, very rarely, if ever, are the Buckeyes playing for a championship and the Browns 
are playing, <laughs> right? So I'm like, this is gonna be a great week. I cannot wait till 8.15 tonight, and I cannot wait till tomorrow night when the Buckeyes defeat Alabama. Like, I cannot wait to, to do all that, right? I can't wait to see the Steelers go down because they will, because they're evil. And so I, I love all of that, right? I, I love that kind of stuff and have a lot of fun in it. And we have had a terrible week. We've had a terrible week. Ready? So as a follower of Christ, who am I? Who am I? Listen, I love you. I hope you know that. The people of God do not participate in the patterns of Babylon. And when the people of God participate in the patterns of Babylon, they disgrace the name of God. If I'm praying that God will save the country and then I go and burn a building down, If I'm praying that God will exercise authority over this country again, and then I beat a police officer to death with a fire extinguisher, then I do not trust the God whose throne room I said I entered. Because I said his name, but I practiced the pattern of Babylon. If I'm praying for justice and equality and racial reconciliation and I go burn a building down and spit in the face of the authorities that God has placed me under in Romans is very clear about that, that I'm defaming the name of the just righteous God that I prayed to the people of God do not participate in the patterns of Babylon. We do not find our hope in this culture. There is nothing new about that. We are not supposed to fit in. Peter says, it's not like something strange is happening to you. This is the way that it is. I do not find my identity in my Americanism. I find it in Christ, in Christ alone. We are foreigners, we are exiles, and we do not forsake the heart and the mind and the truth of Jerusalem so that we can argue in Babylon. But when the people of God build their life and responses off the truth of Jerusalem, God is praised in Babylon. When the people of God never waver from their trust or their hope that was taught to them in Jerusalem, the name of God is lifted high by the king of Babylon. And in the darkest, most wicked place that the scripture ever describes, 
the leader of the wickedness is praising the God of the exile. Now it's pretty easy to talk about that on a national scale because I can feel self-righteous about it. Where this is really hard is in my family room. Because when I'm angry with my kids or I'm angry with my family, my temptation is to practice the patterns of Babylon. Babylon controls, Babylon yells, Babylon shames, Babylon cuts off. Jerusalem doesn't do that. When I'm frustrated in my relationships, my desire is often to get a Babylonian response, change them, make them serve me, get them in line. Jerusalem doesn't think that way. And when I'm anxious and frustrated about life, my temptation is to act like a Babylonian. I have rights, I have a desire, I have authority, you can't tell me. And our Savior humbled himself, took the very nature of a servant, allowed himself to be crucified. And never, even though he had all the power, never practiced the patterns of Babylon. We must resolve that we are the people of God. And the truth of God is what defines us. The power of God is what we lean into. And the calling and the vision and the mission of God is the message of our life. See? These boys, these guys are teenagers. Teenagers who went through re-education camp for three years but decided that they would always find their home in the heart of the God of Jerusalem. Right? Jesus, help us with it. Me first, Lord. I, I am so, I get so frustrated and tense and stressed. I can't stand to see the poor leadership. I can't stand to see the selfishness. And I want to control it but I can't. And Lord, when my opinion jumps to the forefront, your message is lost. So God, help us. Sometimes we need corrected and many, much of the time, we just need help. And you say that you are our help in times of trouble and so help us, we're in trouble. We're living through changes and we don't understand it and we're, we have been delivered to this place in your sovereignty. Help us to ask the question, how do we shine light? How do we 
give grace and truth? How do we serve as your ambassador to this foreign land that you have sent us on mission to? Lord, help us to make sure that starts in our family room, with our friends, in our social media, with our coworkers. Lord, in it all, let us live in such a way that others would wonder the reason for the hope that's within us. So God, this is why we fight on our knees and this is, this is why we wanna know you and why we surrender to you and why we'll go anywhere. We sing all those songs, God, but help us to trust that truth and to be defined and directed by it. Press into us in every way that you need to in these still moments, Jesus.